And it came to pass that there was an American military Humvee on patrol in Afghanistan. The mission was to be on the lookout for Taliban terrorists to defend the small town nearby. Then the explosion occurred. It occurred just a few miles outside of town. The IED ripped through the Humvee, killing all but one of the soldiers. One survived. Survived with shrapnel embedded to the skin. He could not move. He was bleeding. He was stunned. The only surviving soldier, there he was, alone, miles from his base. It was getting dark. From his dazed state, that's when he saw the haze, the moving haze in the horizon. Someone was coming. He saw the vehicle approaching. On the side, it read NATO. Help had arrived. Two soldiers got out, looked at the wreckage, saw the dead bodies, saw the surviving soldier, then shook their heads, mumbled something in another language, got back in their vehicle, and went on. NATO, mind you. About an hour later, the sun began its descent on the other side. Behind the hilltops, the mountainside, another vehicle appeared. It screeched to a halt near the rubble. The soldier could make out an American flag. Out stepped a United States officer. He couldn't see the rank, but he did see the cross on the lapel. It was a chaplain. The chaplain shook his head, looked at his watch, mumbled something about about to be late for a service that he had to officiate, then got back into the vehicle and signaled his driver to move on. Unbelievable. By now it almost was dark and this poor wounded soldier was fading. And just by the time his lights were about to go out, he felt cool water poured over his face. He felt fresh, clean cotton cloth wiping the blood and dirt. He heard his uniform rip open and a bandage applied. The stranger urged him to eat some of the pita bread. The soldier felt himself being dragged to the bed of this old Soviet-era truck. The stranger said something he couldn't understand, but the meaning was clear. Help me help you up. He rolled him onto the bed of the truck, cranked the engine. There was no muffler to the exhaust pipe, so it started with a bang. The clunker got into town at dark into what looked like a small hostel. The stranger helped the soldier into his room, went to the clerk, gave the clerk enough money for two weeks, two weeks, then said something about having to leave so that this guy's boss would know where he was and said to the clerk he'd settle up later if there was a difference. And then he, before he got into his truck and pulled out, he went back to where the soldier was to check on him one more time. The last thing the soldier remembered seeing from the stranger was the stranger's backside. And that was when the soldier's eyes locked onto the stranger's rear pocket and there was this tattered book He could barely make out what was on the cover. The cover, on the cover, there was, well, he saw a crescent and a star and the letters K-O-R. And that's all he saw.
And then Jesus said, Now which of these showed mercy to the soldier? I really think that if Jesus were standing here right now, I mean flesh and blood, I really think that's how he would have told what we know as the very familiar parable of the good Samaritan. I do. This, this unlikely convert, this unlikely one. We're starting a series here this morning called Unlikely Converts and and if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. It's on page 735 of your church Bibles. And beginning in verse 30 is where we see this very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we look at these verses, we're going to see a truth that emerges straight at the top from this story. It's a truth that was relevant then. It's a truth that's relevant for us today. And it's simply this. It's the, I, I want you to see it. I want you to know what it is. If you forget anything else, if you forget anything else, don't forget this. And it's, and it's simply that your unlikely convert, your unlikely convert, the one that's in your life right now that you think they are so far from God. I mean, God to them is not even on the radar screen. Your unlikely convert. Think about how the, who that person is in your life. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's your, in your family. Maybe the unlikely convert in your life is in your marriage. Maybe. Just maybe. Your unlikely convert. Your unlikely convert is the one God wants to reach. That's the truth. That's the truth that we're going to see in these verses here. We're going to see what it looked like in the first century world, and we're going to see what it looks like in our world today. Verse 30 says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. And he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Your unlikely convert. Your unlikely convert. That's the one that God wants to reach. Yeah, I really believe that if Jesus were telling this parable today, it would not, it would not be called the parable of the good Samaria. It would be called the parable of the good Taliban. Now, now before you balk at that, and, and, and you know, I could just feel the tension a little bit in this story. I could feel that. All right. I could feel the tension there. But before you balk at that, you, it, if you do balk at that, I understand 
But what we need to understand is how far centuries removed we are from the, from the emotional repulsiveness of just the, the phrase Samaritan. Samar- I mean, today, when we use the word Samaritan, I mean, what? It's a compliment, right? I mean, we name hospitals, Good Samaritan Hospital, right? We rehabilitation, Good Samaritan. When you're helping somebody on the road, you're fixing a flat tire, the person thanks you and they say, what? You're a good Samaritan, yeah. It's, I mean, we have Good Samaritan laws, Right? You know what a good Samaritan law is, don't you? Good Samaritan law is, is for if you help someone in an emergency situation and it doesn't turn out, it's, it, well, it's for those who are good but inept Samaritans. That's what the whole law is about. Right? Okay? So it's, you know, it's, today it's a compliment. That's, that shows how removed culturally we are centuries, centuries, centuries later. To call someone in first century Hebrew culture a Samaritan was tant, in Jesus' day was tantamount to, to a racial slur. See? Well, it's a compliment today. I mean, it would be unthinkable, unthinkable for us to, to name a hospital, you know, the good Taliban hospital. <laughs> Talk about putting people on tilt, Right? Let's just, let's just, let's just summon Carl Kling. Let's just call it the good Taliban clinic, right? What about Christie Clinic? I know Alan. I'll talk to Alan Glegor. Let's just call it the good Taliban clinic. I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, there was animosity and hatred between the Hebrews of the first century and the Samaritans. The Samaritans happened to be a people group that came about as the result of Assyrian colonization centuries before Christ when the Assyrian Empire came in from the north and swallowed up 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. There was some intermarrying that happened between the Assyrians and the, 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 ten, the Hebrews from the 10 northern tribes and, and the, their descendants and those children became the Samaritan people. And, and see, the two tribes in the south, the southern two tribes, they, that, was, that was to be a traitor. See, they viewed those descendants as traitors, you see. And so there was, by Jesus' name, this was centuries old, centuries old rift between the, between the races, you see. And we've, we've seen a little bit of that in our day. We see that. And I'm not just talking about between blacks and whites. I'm talking about Japanese and Korean. I'm talking about the Hutus and the Tutsis. I'm talking about the Irish Catholics and the Irish Protestants. I'm talking about the, the, the Sunnis and the Shiites. Racial tension. People who hate one another deeply, deep resentment. The thing that went on, in fact, and this is what happened. This is what happened in Jesus' day. In fact, according to one rabbinic proverb, well, the proverb simply says, he that eats the bread of Samaritans is as he who eats the flesh of swine. Whoa, those are strong words. But those are the words which would have been heard by those who first heard this parable. So people see and felt that racial tension. And so they're listening as Jesus is telling this parable. They can see the story. That's going on. They, they, they visualize in their mind's eye what's happening between Jerusalem 
and Jericho. It's about a 17-mile walk, but you need to understand it's not just a stroll in the park. That was, imagine the distance between this church here and the courthouse in Monticello, all right? And imagine having to ascend 200 feet every mile. Jerusalem was 3,300 feet above Jericho, and it wasn't just a straight line. You can see this little ribbon here, which was the road. It's the, you can take the road today from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's going to take you eight hours. I mean, it is a long, long walk. And so you can see how it bends and winds. That's where the bandits would have hung out, and they would have found this soul traveler and beat that poor guy to a pulp, leaving him half dead, robbing him. And then who shows up? Jesus is telling the story. The pastors show up. The clergy, they're going to help, aren't they? They're, of course, they're going to help. They're pastors. Pastors help. This one goes along, takes a look at the guy. Oh, man. Mm. Passes him. What? Well, the second guy's going to come along, right? Huh? Goes on the other side. I don't think so. All right, pray for you, bud. See ya. Heads out. Whoa. We can't depend on the clergy? Huh? I take that personally. But someone's going to come to this person's rescue. I mean, so, something's going to happen. This is going to get resolved, and it's going to be a good, tidy ending. That, because, because, you know, if nothing else, listen, if nothing else, this parable teaches us that, that absolute truth does, in fact, exist. Because everybody, you don't have to have a religious bone in your body to know that it's wrong to leave a half-dead, half-beaten-up person along the path by himself. I mean, we know, we know that. We go up to Chicago, we go into downtown, and we, we see there at the street corner this little old lady. What are the options, right? Little old lady's there at the corners, you know. What, what are the options? Do we snatch the person run? Do we push her out in front of the bus? Or do we help her cross the street? You, you don't have to have a religious bone in your body to figure that one out. You know. So they know that what those characters did was wrong. So the question is, who's going to come to the rescue? Huh? Well, you can't depend upon the clergy. Well, who's the audience? Oh, well, they were country folk. They were farmers. The farmers are going to be the heroes of the parable, of course. Farmers rule, preachers rule. Farmers rule, preachers rule. We know that's what's going to happen. They're just expecting it. It's the farmers are going to come to the rescue because you can depend on them. They feed you. They're going to come. No. No, no, no. Verse 33, Jesus uses, Jesus uses the S word. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, whoa, get the shock. See, got to get the shock there. A Samaritan? Yeah, a Samaritan. One author said, that's like making a member of the PLO the hero of an Israeli play. That's the impact. The Samaritan shows up. Notice it says he came to where the man was. Got right there. He got right there. He got right, he, he, he got right there. He saw his need. He didn't put on, you know, gloves or anything like that. There he was. And it says he took pity on him. Circle that word pity. 
teach you a Bible word. It's the word, it's the word splanknon. It's a new Bible word. Let's all say it on three. One, two, three. Splanknon. Again, one, two, three. Splanknon. There it is. Now you know a new Bible word. It's the word for pity. It's, it is interpreted pity. However, it, it, it literally means your guts. Your guts. Because, you know, when, whenever you see deep human need, what, is it, what does it hit you? Right here. And that's your splanknon. Your guts, your liver, man. Uh, uh, a man falls in love with a woman. He wants to marry her. He says, honey, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And she says, why? He, and he says, because I love you with all my splanknon. I love you with all my, I, I, I love you with all my liver. And she says, I love you with all my liver. And so these two liver lovers just marry. Yeah, I just love you with all my splanknon. And, and the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one, he talks about his, his relationship with this congregation, the Philippian church. He says, I, I long for you with all the splanknon. Of Christ. Ah, Splanchnon. Deep-seated emotions. The ancients believed that your deepest emotions were not in your heart. That's how we would put it. But back then it was in your splanchnon. And so you see, the wrong guy shows up feeling what? Feeling splanchnon, which is an emotion that God feels. God feels. The unlikely convert feels how God feels. But you know what? It's not enough, is it? To simply see a need and then feel the splanchnon, is it? It's not enough. It's not enough. You've got to see the need. You've got to feel the splanchnon. And then look what he did. He takes action. He takes action. He, he pours on oil and wine. Oil and wine. Now, Jesus does not waste an image here in this parable oil and wine where do we see oil and wine where do we see wait a minute oil and wine a samaritan shouldn't have oil and wine the levite and the priest should have oil and wine why because they were just back up at the temple those were elements of temple worship you see what jesus is getting at what we're doing in here today church family if it just stays in here is of no use whatsoever See, Jesus is saying that these two, the clergy did not connect the fact that the elements that they'd been using in worship were in fact to be used outside in the real world where need would hit them right in the face. But here, it is the wrong guy, the unlikely convert who feels the way God feels and he's the one who's able to connect the dots. He connects because you see, worship is not just what goes on in this room. Worship is giving all that we are to all that God is. And so if we have not taken the elements of what we're learning here in this room and put it in to play out there, then we haven't truly worshiped, have we? And the wrong kind of person shows up, sees the need, feels how God feels, and then connects worship for how it truly is. My goodness, unlikely convert is the one God wants to read. And yeah, took him to the inn and two silver coins, that's two weeks. 
at the extended stay. Plops the money down, pays in cash. I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then in verse 36, Jesus asks the are you smarter than a fifth grader question. Right? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And this guy, he couldn't even say the S word, could he? He couldn't even say the s s He couldn't even say it. Couldn't even get the word out of his mouth. He just said, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, so then why are we having this conversation? Go and do likewise. Why, 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 why are we having this conversation? Why were they having that conversation anyway? Why, why were they having that conversation? Well, you've got to look back up to the parable, don't you, to see that. Look at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law. So he's a theologian. Expert in the law. Stood up to test Jesus. Oh, this is going to be good. Right? Jesus, I'm going to ask you a question, and then you're going to answer it, and then I'm going to evaluate that. Oh, this is going to be rich. Yeah. I I want to get a front row to see this happen. Wow. Teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, bless you. Jesus says... Well, Jesus would have said, bless you as well, but that's not what he says here in the text. He says, what is written in the law? What is written in the law? What? You know, you tell me. How do you read it? Well, the guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love God, love people. Guess what? We just talked about that earlier, didn't we, this summer? That if you want to know, if you want to grow spiritually, growing spiritually is not just a matter of putting your time in here. Or putting your time in a small group. It's not just a mad, that's just not what we're talking about. It's not talking about church activity. Growing spiritually has to do with the level of love in my heart and life and, and spiritually and physically and mentally and emotionally is welling up in love for God. And then it's, and then it's just loving people, loving my neighbor, love God, love people. To the extent that that's growing in my life, God's love for him and others, that's spiritual growth. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, the man, what he wanted to, he says, well, then who's my neighbor? Why would he say that? Look, look, because he wanted to what? Justify himself. In other words, he fired his arrow, it landed at the tree, and then he got out his marker and put the bullseye around it. Right? That's what he wanted to do. Pitched his horseshoe. When the horseshoe landed, take the stake, boom, ringer. Took out his uh, yard darts. Remember yard darts? Huh? Oh, wow. Yeah, you know. Can you believe they actually manufactured those things? <laughs> throw those things. Or We used to do this with my brothers. And so, anyway, you throw, you throw, those, throw those yard darts, jarts, and then at, wherever it lands is, then you put that ring, that, that plastic ring. Yeah, there, see, bullseye, right there. That's what the guy was doing. Uh, who's my neighbor? See, who do I have to love, Jesus? Which means, who don't I have to love? It's a fence-building question. Because once you start building those fences, then you're on one side and somebody else is on the other side and you don't have to love them because Jesus said so. Did he really? It's a fence-building question. And Jesus, 
I mean, he's calling into question the whole temple system, right? Because the temple is just a series of concentric fences. There was the fence that kept the non-Hebrews out. Then you'd go through that gate. But then there was another gate that would keep the Hebrew women out. And then there was yet another gate that kept the Hebrew men out. And there was yet another gate that, that kept the priests out until it was just the high priest. And God is fences, fences, fences. We build all these fences. And we think somebody's on the other side. And, we're only, and we forget that in God's view, there's really one fence. And, and it's him and everybody else. And Jesus came to take down that fence. He came to, to strip that. And when the cross went up, the fence went down because Jesus not only taught, taught this parable, church family, but, oh, man, he lived, he lived the truth of the parable as he came on a search and rescue mission. And he, he wasn't half dead on that road. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But on the third day he rose. And when he rose up, the fence went down. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one. The two what? The two races. You see, from a Hebrew perspective, there's only two races. There's the Hebrew race, and then there's everybody else, okay? That's why Paul says he's made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Then he says in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. My goodness. So Jesus says, stop asking who's my neighbor. Stop asking that question. You know what? Guess what? There are some questions you don't get to ask God. I mean, you can ask, but don't expect him to answer it. Really. I mean, that's above your security clearance. It's not your job Two, it's not your job to define your neighbor. Your job is to be one. That's your job. To the person who comes into contact with you, right there in front of your face. Right there. Your unlikely convert. Your unlikely convert. That's the one that God wants you to reach, you see. Now, what would it be like here for us to put that into practice in our lives. Who is your unlikely convert? Who is that person? Get a picture of that person? You got their image at work? Maybe it's at home? Who is that? What would it look like? I'm just thrilled to say that more and more, we are, we are, we are going and doing. For instance, a couple weeks ago at Family Resource Day, what a powerful, powerful day of ministry that was. Nearly 60 of us from our uh, congregation went and we met needs with love. We met needs with love. We, we were neighbors and we loved and we shared and we saw and acted in compassion. That's, that's what we're talking about, okay? Uh, this afternoon, meeting needs with love. 
for those of you who can come to the big back-to-school bash. Folks are looking for connections in church family. Our mission is about being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And that happens as we contagiously influence our world, you see? But what I've just told you here is, 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 is kind of an undergraduate version of going and doing. I mean, when we do this involved with a church family, that's wonderful. That's just the starting point. Let me tell you about Catherine Rohr. This is, this is graduate school going and doing. Catherine Rohr uh, worked on Wall Street. She was an investment security trader. She walked away. She's about 31 now. Uh, five years ago, five years ago, making six figures, she walked away uh, from her job, and she moved to Houston, Texas, to the Texas Federal Penitentiary. And she has now started a ministry called Prison Entrepreneurship Program. And what she does is, is she just has classes throughout uh, the year to inmates who are about ready to be released within a year of being released. And she teaches them MBA level courses so that they can devise a business plan and so that then they can make it when they get on the outside. Because I'm going to tell you, uh, um, convicted felons are, are, really in our culture, they're like leprosy. Who wants to touch them? What employer wants to hire? I mean, it's just, that's, that's what we're talking about. And so, but she takes them and she gives them a business plan. And, 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 and see, here's how she puts it. She says, I mean, the, these are convicted gang leaders. These are convic- convicted drug dealers. I mean, this is, these, these are hardened criminals. But, then, but they are about to be released. And she, and she says, we already know that they have entrepreneurship ability. <laughs> I mean, they, they've already proven that. <laughs> we're just trying to, we're just trying to redirect that talent <laughs> in a God-honoring way, you see. And, and, you know, nationwide, the return to prison rate is, what, 60%, you know, 60%. Of the 350-ish who have gone through the prison entrepreneurship program, the return to prison rate, 4%. I mean, it's amazing, amazing. And uh, I didn't have time to show you an interview but uh, when you leave, if you uh, get a, um, one of our study sheets, and we passed out study sheets so that you can have quiet times each day. And thank you, Janice. And uh, I've got a link to this incredible story uh, at Prison Entrepreneurship Program. And we'll have this, we'll have this sheet uh, on our website, too, for you to access this as well this week, too, so that you can see that. But see, that's what we're talking about. And, and the love of Christ is put into this young lady's heart. And now she's being used in, in remarkable ways. And the reason why I tell you that is, church family, that is not out of our league here. See, see listen, God has put giftedness and ability into your heart and into your life. He's put that in there. And he wants to see a return on that investment, you see. And so, and so your unlikely convert... Catherine Ward gets it. Those are unlikely converts. You're unlikely convert. That's the, that's the person God wants to reach, you see. And in fact, we're going to close our service right now. And, uh, you know, school started, and we have many educators in our church. 
and you, uh, in your classroom, you're, you're, you are shepherd teachers. Uh, let's all stand. And if you are an educator, I'm going to ask if you will, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you're an educator, we did this last year. We're in, we did it first service. If you're an educator, either private school, public school, home school, I want you to make your way up here on stage right now, and we're going to pray over you. Uh, just make your way. Quickly make your way. It's time. Make your way up here on stage. Just surround me up here. Come on up the steps, because I know there's many of us. Make your way on stage, and, and um, let me pray over you and the Lord's ministry through you as you shepherd and pastor the unlikely converts in your classroom and in your school. Come on up. Look at all this influence. It's just, this is just part of us. Amen. Wow. This is, this, is con- this is contagious influence right here. So let me pray for us, and then, uh, then we're going to sing our way out here. Our gracious Heavenly Father, are we not a congregation of unlikely converts or what? We are the unlikely converts. Is there a likely convert, Lord? Thank you that your grace and your mercy have just been just flooded into our hearts. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. Pastor teachers of the classroom to which you have assigned each. Oh Lord, speak through them. Help them meet needs with love. And may your name be glorified as their students learn and then get curious about you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.